once again from the book of Esther. We're doing a short four-week series in the book of Esther, and we are looking at just, we're reading chapter four, but we're kind of looking at chapter three and chapter four together. Uh, you can open uh, to, cha- uh, yeah. oh, I just prayed for clarity and I'm losing it. Uh, you can open to Esther chapter 4 now. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, it is printed in your bulletins as well. I am going to read uh, all of Esther chapter 4 for us. When Mordecai learned that all had been done, Mordecai, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry, He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is God's word. So we are once again in the book of Esther, making our way through the book of Esther. And as always happens, whenever I start a book, I start reading it and I think, okay, you know, we could probably do four sermons on this, or maybe we'll do six sermons on this or whatever. And then the more I read, the more I'm like, oh, I want to preach on that. And oh, I should preach on that too. And then I I get all messed up and I want to extend the the series from like 4 to 12. But I made a promise to all of you, and so I won't do that. We are going to stick with 
four sermons on the book of Esther, and we're going to stick with this plan of looking through the, or looking at some of the major themes of the book of Esther. And we did essentially Esther's chapter one and two last time, um, where we learned that the main, one of the main themes that Esther teaches us is that God is never absent. One of the strange things about the book of Esther, if you didn't know this, uh, is that um, God is never mentioned anywhere in the book of Esther. Nowhere. Religion isn't really mentioned anywhere. Prophecy, visions, prayer, none of that. We have fasting in this chapter, but they don't even say why they're fasting. They don't say that they're fasting for religious reasons. It just says fast. So it's weird that way. But the reason is because the author is demonstrating through the story of Esther that God is never absent, that even when he looks to be very, very far away, when he, really, when he looks to be hidden, when it looks like he has abandoned his people, he has not. He is always, always, always present, and he is always, always, always at work. That was last week. This week, we're looking at chapters 3 and 4. And to catch you up on the story, by this time, Esther has been queen of Persia for ballpark five years. And a plot to kill Mordecai and all the Jews throughout the empire has been uncovered by Mordecai. And so the Jews are in real danger. We're going to talk about that plot and how it gets hatched next week. But for for now, all we need to know is that the Jews are in terrific danger. And so Mordecai, of course, goes to Esther, the queen, and he issues her a challenge. He says, look, we're going to die. All the Jews are targeted for, for genocide. We are going to be wiped out unless you do something. We need a mediator. We need an advocate. We need someone to go stand before the king and plead on our behalf. And you're the only one who can do it. And ultimately, Esther agrees. And in agreeing, she has taken a tremendous risk. Because as she describes in the passage we just read, there was a law... I don't know if you ever heard of the law, this saying, well, according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, you've heard that saying maybe. What that means is, is when someone says that, they mean this is an unbreakable law because uh, Xerxes and his predecessors had said, when I make a law, it is unbreakable. It cannot be broken. It has to remain. And one of those unbreakable laws was this. If you walked into the king in his throne room unannounced and without being invited first, you're dead meat. Unless the king looked at you and for some strange reason, he held out the scepter toward you, which meant, come, I'm willing to accept an audience with you. Esther's problem is that for 30 days, she's been, she's his wife, remember? For 30 days, he has not called on her, has not invited her into his chamber, and he probably doesn't sleep alone. So Esther's like, maybe he's upset with me. Maybe I did something wrong. Maybe he's just cranky. In any case, if I go into him, there's a good chance that I'll be dead, okay? Or maybe he found out that I'm Jewish and he doesn't like me because of that. Who knows? Anyhow, she could die for this. But she says, nevertheless, I will do it. And if I perish, I perish. And you and I read that and we say, what guts, hey? What nerve. What backbone, what a woman this Esther is. I wish I was like Esther, right? 
Don't you wish you were like Esther? No, none of you care. I wish I was like Esther, okay? And I kind of want you to want to be like Esther because uh, now I'm going to say, ah, but wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, not so fast. The theme for this message is this. Grace produces greatness. Grace produces greatness. You'll see an outline in your sermon, in your sermon notes, by the way, and uh, if there's time for questions afterwards, my phone number's there, you can text me your question um, as well. But uh, grace produces greatness is the theme for this morning, because you see, this story is not about how awesome Esther is, it's actually about how awesome God is. And the way God shows His, if I can put it this way, awesomeness in this story is by demonstrating the power of His grace. So we're going we're gonna to have a look at that. There's four points. We're going to start with point number one, of course, and it's this. God uses us by grace. God uses us by grace. Up until now, in the story of Esther, the character Esther is not a model for you and I to emulate. If you read chapters 1 and 2, you'll see that Esther is actually the opposite of a model to you. She's not compliant, or sorry, she's, she's not, she doesn't seem to have much of a backbone. She's tremendously compliant. She does whatever's told of her. She seems to be willing to compromise her values. She plays the role of kind of the, the sex kitten. She plays the system to get ahead. You would call her a sellout. And actually, different commentators have noticed that uh, over the years, that you have the more sort of feminist commentators who say, you know what, Esther is actually a traitor to her gender because she, she does play up the sexy role in order to save her skin. She does all these things to avoid death, uh, and she, she's not like Vashti, who when the king wanted to have her come out and show off her beauty and have everybody ogle her, she said, no way, I'm not doing that. I'm not a piece of meat. You're not going to treat me that way. Esther says, okay, if that's what I got to do, that's what I got to do. And so the feminist scholars say, she's a sellout because she's a traitor to her gender. And then the conservative scholars say, uh-uh, she's a sellout because she's a traitor to her religion. Because she's Jewish and she hides it. She broke all the dietary and ceremonial laws, we're sure of that. She broke the rule uh, about sleeping with someone before they're mar you're married to them. And she broke the rule about marrying an unbeliever. Because she willingly uh, married the king. And so she was a sellout because she was a traitor to her religion. If you, comp if you know your Bibles well, you'll know there's a story about Daniel and his buddies. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They're in Babylon. It's another empire with another bad dude named Nebuchadnezzar who's in charge. And Nebuchadnezzar says, I want everybody to bow down and worship this idol that I've created. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, no, we're not going to do it. We'll serve you. We'll work in your courts. We'll do all the things you want, but we want to eat, uh, eat um, as vegetarians. We want to practice our Jewishness and we, our Jewish religion, and we will not bow down to your idols. And everybody goes, man, Daniel and his friends, they're amazing. That's how you should behave in, in the culture in which we live. And Esther, she's like the opposite. She's, she's a wimp, <laughs> if I can put it that way. She's a total sellout. And yet, here's the amazing thing. Amazingly enough, she's the one that God has chosen for this task. 
She is an integral part of God's plan to redeem his people. Even with all that bad morality, even with all that moral failure, she is not a good person. And here's the point. In Scripture, God is always described as a God of grace who is using moral failures all the time. See, people, people think that biblical characters, they must be goody-two-shoes, you know? And, and Christians, therefore, must be goody-two-shoes too because it's religion, it's about being good. And so when you read the Bible, God picks these good people and he does great things with them. And if you're a Christian, you read the Bible and you follow the Bible and that means you must be a good person too or at least think you're a good person. And it's all this about being morally upright stuff. But when you actually read the Bible carefully, what is utterly shocking is that you can hardly find a morally upright person anywhere in it. Okay, Daniel's pretty awesome, admittedly. But there are not many other characters that are. Look at, look at the heroes of the faith. Noah, he's a drunk. Abraham, he's a cheat and a liar. Moses, he's a murderer. David, King David, well... You know about King David. Even the New Testament. Look at Peter. Peter is this brash, impulsive, frankly, cowardly guy. And what about Paul? He's like the most self-righteous, religiously legalistic, priggish guy out there who actually thinks that it is good to kill other people in the name of his religion. See, Scripture is not... It is not a morality play. It is not VeggieTales, okay? We, we gave our kids VeggieTales too, okay? So I'm not like slamming on all of you people showing your kids VeggieTales videos. But look, if you watch the VeggieTales videos, a lot of them are about like, be like David, be like Joshua. Here's the, here's the story, you know, you want the Bible story, and then at the end of it is what we learned is be courageous or don't steal or whatever. Scripture is... Yeah, there's lots of rules, and it teaches you about morality, absolutely true. But first and foremost, what the Bible is about is it's about God loving, undeserving, morally corrupt people, and then restoring them and using them for His good purposes. That's the first point. God uses us by grace, and Esther is a perfect example of that. Okay, well... I mean, look at this. Esther is at the top of society. How did she get there? Compromise. She slept her way to the top. And if you're honest, you compromise too. Maybe you're not like compromising that way in big ways, but you compromise too. Some of you are at the top. How'd you get to the top? Maybe you overworked and neglected your family. Maybe you cut corners. People do that all the time, right? 
They don't do the job exactly the way it's supposed to be done because a little quicker makes a little bit more money. Some people do cash work on the side and they don't claim it. Some people don't pay their taxes or they avoid it. Some people just commit little white lies all the time. This is good news for us, friends. God uses us by grace. We are all sellouts to some degree. It's so easy to look down on Esther. But we're all sellouts to some degree. Come on, if you're here this morning and you feel a little bit damaged by your past or you're ashamed of what you've been, and maybe you're thinking, like, I'm a disaster. I could never be a leader in my church community, or, or I, I could never do a, a, a anything important in any kind of ministry because of all the garbage that I've been through and all the garbage that I've done. You're not understanding how God works. Look at Esther. Up until this point, very few redeeming qualities. The only one she's got is she's really, really good looking. God uses us by grace. Okay, but how... how how can he do that? <laughs> How does he do that? And the answer is, he changes us by grace. Point number two, he changes us by grace. Look at this Esther story again. She doesn't stay a doormat. She does become brave. She does become bold. She does become brazen. By chapter five, if you keep reading, and I encourage you to keep reading this as we're going through the series, she does go to Xerxes. She walks in there, and she's got a pretty big request. And, and by chapter eight, she intervenes and with a like very brazen request to King Xerxes. And so she's getting more brave all the time. How does she get from this compliant little only worried about herself and her own safety kind of chicken to this valiant sacrifice herself for the sake of her people kind of lion? Well, we see it in this exchange between Mordecai and uh, Esther in the last part of chapter 4, beginning at verse 13 and following. Mordecai comes and he brings this request, right? He says, you got you to gotta go in and plead on our behalf, otherwise we're dead meat. And she responds with, if I go in, I'm dead. And then Mordecai responds with this, verse 13, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. So he kind of lays it in front of her, and he says, don't be a fool, Esther. Think about it. You're not safe. You're going to get nailed just like the rest of us. And your options are basically this. If you don't risk the palace, you're dead. If you do risk the palace, you might live. Pretty good kind of logic he uses, right? But then, in verse 14... He says, perhaps the most religious statement in the entire book, he says this, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Hmm. In other words, he says, look, salvation's coming, Esther. It's on its way. If it doesn't come through you, it's going to come through someone else. He just knew that. He was sure of that. He knew that God was not absent, right? 
He, he somehow foresees that, that God, the God of the past, the God who had made covenant with his ancestors so many centuries ago was a faithful God who would intervene, who would act, and, and, and would do this. But listen, this is what this means. When he says to Esther, look, if, you, if he doesn't use you, he's going to use somebody to save us. This is one of the things that he's telling Esther. He's telling her, God does not need you. Don't go thinking you're all that important, lady. Yeah, you're very pretty. Yeah, you're beautiful. But you're not all that in a bag of chips. God does not need you. This is incredibly humbling. But this should be incredibly freeing. Look, some of you have trouble sleeping at night. When your head hits the pillow, your brain starts whirring worrying and worrying. And you start thinking about all the things that you need to do. You start thinking about all those people that you're concerned about. They're important people in your lives, absolutely, but, but you're worried about them. You're worried about your son or your daughter or your mom or your dad or your friend or your coworker. You're worried about them. And, and it's not just I have a concern about them because I'm seeing some things that make me concerned. You're worrying about them in the sense that you think that you've got to do something. You have got to do something. It's dependent upon you to make sure that, that things change in their life so that, that things can go well in their life. And you start to list all these people and all these things that you have to do. And what you're essentially doing is, is you're, you're carrying around the burden of divinity, of self-importance. You're living as though God does need you, as though somehow it's dependent upon you that, that this change in this person's life or that that person gets... Uh, pulled out of the situation that they're in. It's dependent upon you, but the reality is is that God does not need you. And you are working yourself up thinking that you have such tremendous concern, but really what you have is you have control issues. I remember uh, when Jessica and I were getting uh, married, we went to marriage counseling, right? Like pre-marriage counseling, right? So so we're sitting there with the marriage counselor, and he's like, so what do you guys want to do with your lives? And we're saying all kinds of silly stuff, because we're young and whatever. And so, this, so I'm like, I want to influence multitudes for Jesus. <laughs> whatever. Anyhow, and he looks at me, and he goes, well, that's very good. Uh, just remember, eh, God doesn't need you to do that. And I was like, gee, Thanks. Um, but here's the thing. It was incredibly freeing to realize that God doesn't need me to do that, but perhaps, just maybe, God wants me to do that. In other words, maybe he's picked me for something. Maybe he's called me to something. And what he's called me to is, is to be faithful and to follow and to trust him and to obey him. First of all, what an honor. What an honor for, for Esther to be chosen for this task. Have you ever had that? Have you ever had 
somebody come up to you, I don't know, maybe it's like a committee or a job or whatever. Somebody comes up to you and they say, would you be willing to do X or sit on this or participate in that? And you're like, me? Wow, me. You would pick me. You're you're, you're, hum- you're, you're almost humbled by it. You're, you're certainly honored by it because you're wanted. But then in the next breath, you're like, <gasps> me? And you're terrified at the same time because you're thinking to yourself, what if I screw this up? What if I, what if I blow it? It all depends on me. But, but that's not how it works with God. God says, I love you. I delight in you. I call you. I invite you to participate in something with me. And I call you simply to be faithful, simply to follow, simply to obey, and let me worry about the results. I got this, not you. Now, that is incredibly freeing, okay? And that's the first way that grace changes you. It's a bit of a punch in the gut, but it's the good kind. But there's more. There's another way that grace changes you, and it's, it's in the second half of that verse, of verse 14, where it says this. You and your father... Okay, and who knows? This is Mordecai talking again. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? You've probably heard that, many of you have heard that phrase, right? For such a time as this. Who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, not to get it too technical about the language, but it's in a, a passive form, okay? The words are there in, a, in the original, or words in a, in a passive form. So, so another way of translating this, maybe even a better way of translating this, is to say, not you have not come, but you have been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. And this is important because what Mordecai is telling Esther now is, is look, you're not here because you brought yourself here. You're not in the palace and in a position of power because you're so great. Yes, you're very attractive, you're very good looking and all that, but let's face it, that's genes, that's mom and dad, that's not you, right? Your status, your influence, your power, all these advantages you have, Esther, they're a gift, Okay, you listened to Haggai when he said, here's the things you should do to get favor with Xerxes. You did what he told. Good for you. But you wouldn't even have been in the palace and had that opportunity if it wasn't for grace. Look, if, if you're doing well at something and, and we're talking and you're saying, yeah, you know, a business is growing really well or I made it ahead at, at work or, or I got this many, like I got, I got a 90 average at school and I say to you, yeah, you know that's all of grace, eh? <laughs> You're going to be like, uh, excuse me, but I studied really hard, or I worked really hard, or I got the right education. I did all these things. We kick against this idea that it's all of grace, but all I have to say to you is, look where you are. Huh? What do you mean? Well, what if you were born in South Sudan? How successful would you be right now then? It's all of grace. Ultimately, it's all of grace. Now, when this sinks into you, it's another kick in the gut or punch in the gut. But when it sinks into you, it starts to change you. Because look at Esther. When she realizes, look, I'm here by grace. I'm here because I was in the right place at the right time, because God put it all together in the right way. She no longer clings to this position, you see. 
Yes, she is in the palace. Yes, she's in a position of influence. Yes, she's also in a position of comfort. But she realizes she has no right to it. It's been given to her. Some of you, all of you to some degree, but some of you are certainly in the palace. You are in positions of influence, maybe at work. You're in a position of influence. Maybe among colleagues, you're in a position of influence. Maybe in your family, you're in a position of influence. There are are people who listen to you. You have a, a certain weight that you, are, you carry. But here's the problem. Because you're clutching at that position of influence, you don't say anything. You compromise. You're quiet about your faith. Or you're silent about shady work practices that are being done. Or, or you shut up about the behavior of your friends or your family members or whatever because you don't want to rock the boat, you see. You don't want to take a risk. But if you're there by grace and God doesn't need you in the first place, you got to ask yourself, why are you there at all? Are you there to feather your own nest, build up your retirement fund so that when you do retire, you are free to do the things that you think are fun? Are you there for you? No. You're there for Him. Esther's there to identify with the oppressed, to seek justice for them, to wield her power and her influence for those who can't. Grace changes you. Second of all, or or finally, sorry, Second of all, last thing, God empowers us by grace. See, if we stop the sermon here, just look at grace here, grace here, be like Esther, off you go, you'd be duck soup because you're looking at Esther and you're like, okay, maybe I haven't been standing up and speaking boldly and maybe I have been compromising or whatever, but you just telling me that maybe I'm doing that and I shouldn't do that isn't really going to change me, right? Because the point, I said at the very beginning, the point of the Bible and the point of this message is not be like Esther. It's about how God's grace produces greatness. So you're not supposed to be looking at Esther by the end of this message. You're supposed to be looking at grace. And you have far more reason to remember grace than Esther ever did. Think about this. Esther was a queen who identified with the oppressed. And she became an advocate and a mediator for them before an all-powerful king. And that all-powerful king showed favor to her people because he showed favor to her. Does that sound familiar? See, Esther points ahead. She points ahead to an ultimate mediator. Jesus Christ was in the seat of power. He had total authority. He he existed in unbridled brilliance and majesty and beauty, and he left it all, and he came into this world, and he became common. He became ordinary. He became so average because he came to identify with you and with me. And you see, he went into God's throne room too, the throne room of justice, 
And he didn't say, if I perish, I perish. He said, when I perish. Because the difference is, is that he knew that if he walked into the throne room on our behalf, he knew that he was dead. The law of the Medes and Persians, it's unbreakable. How much more unbreakable is the law of an almighty God who says that the wages of sin is death? And yet he took our place. He stood in between. And he was not shown favor. But he was shown judgment so that you and I would receive favor. Esther knew where she was by grace. How much more should we know? You know, the front of the bulletin always has these little quotes. And sometimes I point you to them, sometimes I don't. I'm going to point you to the last one this morning. It's by Lao Tzu who actually is the father of Taoism, which is a Eastern philosophy, but we believe that all truth is God's truth, and so Taoist philosophy can have some truth. And he is reputed to have said, being deeply loved by someone gives you strength, while loving someone deeply gives you courage. That's the grace of God. In the grace of God, you are loved so deeply. Jesus looks at you and says, you, I make, you weren't lovely, but I loved you and I died for you and I, I gave my everything for you. What, what better demonstration of how loved you are is that than laying down his life for you? And when you see that and that sinks into you, you fall in love with him. And it gives you the courage to stand up in your family or to stand up in your workplace or to stand up in your school or to stand up with your buddies and say, dudes, I, what, are we, what are we doing? I can't do that. I can't do that. How could I do that? How could I do that to him? Work colleagues, we, we can't do that. How could we do that? I can't do that to him. The love of God, the grace of God, being deeply loved by someone gives you strength, while loving someone deeply gives you courage. Let's pray. Father, thank you for loving us deeply. Give us the courage to love you in return. Give us the strength to follow you in obedience, not to be like Esther, but to be like Christ, who gave himself for us. In his name we pray, amen.